Welcome to episode 3 of Page 94, the Private Eye podcast, now officially with more episodes than David Cameron has ever won general elections. Specifically, three more episodes than David Cameron has ever won general elections. Later on, I'll be talking to Jane McKenzie about the crisis in higher education, and to Ian Hislop about the crisis in Piers Morgan. But before all that, it's election time. The Queen has dissolved Parliament using a special button she keeps about her person at all times. David Dimbleby has been summoned from the ether by a circle of BBC executives standing around an old swingometer and chanting the shipping forecast backwards. In just five incredibly long weeks, we will sort of probably not quite have another government. And in spite of all the excitement, a huge aura of tedium hangs over the entire campaign so far, because we know that at the end of the 90 minutes of the Westminster Cup Final 2015, neither team will have won. In fact, one of the teams will probably have to patch up a coalition with a smaller team in order to desperately claim victory. Add to that the fact that a small but sizable proportion of the crowd would like to break away and form their own stadium a little further north, and you have a recipe for tedium and excitement all at the same time. It will all be covered in the pages of the magazine and on this podcast. This week's magazine features the first of our election ball series, all the gaffes, howlers and bloopers that candidates have made so far. Already we've received some examples of candidates who've managed to misspell the name of their own constituency in their election literature. We haven't yet found anyone spelling their own name wrong yet, but it can only be a matter of time. This week we also heard about the constituency of Edisbury in Cheshire, in which three out of five candidates used to belong to a different party than the one they're now standing for. The UKIP candidate, unsurprisingly, used to be in the Conservative Party until 2010 when he defected. The Green candidate was in the Liberal Democrats until 2011 when he defected. And the Lib Dem candidate used to be in the SDP, apart from a brief spell in 1992 when he signed a press release urging people to vote for John Major and saying another Lib Lab pact would be dismal. If you can find any better examples of past the party in your own constituency, please do send them in to us. Now, despite the enormous bump in tuition fees over the last several years, from £3,000 a year now to the eye-watering £9,000 a year, higher education is not in great shape. Considering the fact that fees are so high, money is surprisingly scarce, unless you're one of the very few people at the top making enormous sums out of it. I spoke to the Eyes Education correspondent, Jane McKenzie, about just what is going wrong in the garden of higher education. I started off by asking her what the effect of the tuition fee rise had been on students themselves. I think there was there was certainly a year when it dipped very badly. I think partly because anyone who could had gone as quickly as they could. Yeah. Um, and the sort of whole year out wasn't taken in order to avoid being in that first year that had to pay it. But yes, I think on the whole, people still realise that they're going to have to shell out. They're going to have to put themselves into debt because they have to have that qualification for more and more careers that maybe many would argue don't require the qualification except you'll never get through the door without it. It's interesting one point of opposition that wasn't made as much as I thought it would be is that it'll affect the kind of degrees that people do. People will take degrees where they know that there's a chance of a higher paying job at the end of it and it might have a knock-on effect on certain kinds of degrees. Absolutely I think yes the humanities are going to suffer to some extent because they're not being pushed as a degree that leads directly into a career and universities are very much measuring themselves on um, what careers they're getting people into rather than whether they're producing well-rounded thinkers these days. You've written a lot I think about university funding in particular and where universities are getting their money from Mm. and it's not all from students paying £9,000 a year is it? Absolutely not, no a huge chunk of the university's funding comes from the research funding and certainly that 
guides an awful lot of what decisions are made about where to focus and whether the focus is on teaching or research. So what proportion of your staff's time is actually ever spent with undergraduates at all? And the research funding, just to be absolutely clear, is mm. that governmental or is it external? Is it business driven? It's a bit of everything. There's the research councils who proportion out the government funding for, for research. And then, for instance, if you're a large medical university, then you may be getting funding from bodies like Wellcome Trust, or Cancer mm. Research to fund those things. And then if you're running an aviation engineering department, you may be getting funding from Boeing. Right. So there's a lot of different funding streams that universities are taking into account. And they're interested in in the research, obviously. They provide the funding, therefore they expect research to be carried out. They do, and there are a lot of questions over the way in which that research will then be published. If it's owned by a particular company yeah. who've paid for it to be found out, then... They don't want it published in an open fashion so that competitors can use it and they certainly don't want failures published because that doesn't look very good for them. So it's turning university research almost into a proprietary research wing of your own company. branch of R&D for companies, yes. That's extraordinary. Mm. And obviously that won't be happening as much in humanities departments because, you know, no one needs to build a better kind of book. Yeah, it's it's engineering departments (laughs) and pharmaceutical departments, chemical engineering, all that kind of thing. Has that trend been increasing over the last few years? Is it to do with the funding gap that universities are turning to research more or has it always been a feature of life at university? I think it's increasing. It it will have always been a gap issue for universities because they want more funding to fund more stuff. But certainly a lot of things would now be being lost and are being lost because there isn't funding from a sort of central government resource for various things. So... They're then having to look elsewhere for the money. Right. Are are there any particular kind of things that are being lost? Yes. I mean, to look at the institutions that are slightly wider than universities, things like Kew, which is a massive research institute, they've lost an enormous amount of funding that was going into globally important plant science. And if you lose that as a data source, then you can't get it back quickly. Anything where you've kept a big amount of data over a long period of time then if you stop doing the research, it's not like you can pick it up again next year. All your plants have died. It's, right. like, it's no good. You can't sort of not water everything for a year and right. carry on. So this funding balance, or rather imbalance, between mm. money you're getting from undergraduates, money you're getting from research, mm. it, it must lead to pressure being exerted on people, surely. I mean, it's you, you're, no, you're not free to do pure research. No, absolutely. And for individual academics, um, it's... So, quite a few universities now are setting specific financial targets for how much money your research will bring in. So for instance in the current issue we have the story of an academic at Bristol University who was given targets um, for her veterinary medicine research to bring in a certain amount of funding and when she failed to make that target they fired her. Now, she is really well liked by her students. She teaches an important area that they will need as vets. And her research is extremely good, but it was turned down for grant money. So they've got rid of her. And that's far from an isolated case. There are more and more universities starting to set individual academics financial targets as if they were working in 
some kind of marketing firm or something. Yeah. There isn't enough research money to go around, so some people will miss their targets, no matter how good their research or their teaching is. Right. I wasn't at all aware of this as an undergraduate. Mm. You know, you have a very idealised, well, you, you pay some fees and then you go yes. there and they teach you for a bit and that money ends up with them or it ends up with the university and they get a bit of it, you know. Yes. But that seems to be not the case. Not at all. Um, it's a very high-pressure environment for academics at the moment, financially. The idea that what really counts to the university is, is the bottom line. How much money are you bringing them? Not how clever are you, how good is your work, how good are you conveying that knowledge to other people no it's is that research worth a bit of cash well you say that there's a huge squeeze on academics financial standards that's not mm. the entire story though is it because i think there is a small number of people who are doing okay out of academia at the moment oh yes <laughs> <laughs> vice chancellors are doing very nicely their salary figures came out again this year and at the top end huge rises so yes ordinary lecturers department professors, all those kind of people, pay, pay, pay freeze for years and years. But now at the top end, they're now averaging across all the universities 260000 as a salary. But a lot of them are an awful lot more than that. Really? Yes, yes. Are there any worst offenders that you can name and shame? <laughs> uh, the Vice-Chancellor at Nottingham Trent University, who's called Neil Gorman, uh, it was his final year in the job, so he got a little bit of a bump on his, his money to as he went, um, but what he got was £623,000 for that final year in the job. Wow. That's... And that's about four nice. times the Prime Ministerial salary. Not that the Prime Ministerial salary is some sort of benchmark <laughs> which everyone has to abide by, but nonetheless, that is quite a striking figure. That is quite a huge figure, yeah. yes. <laughs> and what, how do they justify these? And how, in fact, who makes the decisions about how, they, how their pay is there doled are out? University remuneration committees. Okay. Um, and essentially what happens is they're all in a race to the top. So they are... Their argument is that they want to recruit the best person, and obviously such and such a university is offering the best person this much, so we will offer them a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more to overtake each other, um, because prestige is such a big deal for the universities. So um, there was a recent case in the Russell Group universities where they were all holding benchmarking exercises of their salaries against each other, and, and somehow all went up. Where the benchmark was was a little unclear. Well, they, they just moved the entire benchmark up, up did they? Yes, the, okay. it's useful. If you were all benchmark exercising, there isn't... The bench was kind of floating freely. Wow. So. We're used to thinking of those practices as belonging to banks. Yes. Members of banks' committees or boards sit on each other's remuneration committees and they all decide, well, we've done hugely we've well done this year. Terrifically, yeah. yes. <laughs> we all deserve a lot more money. It's very, very hard in our sector. We will have to have more money to make up for it. And so do, are the universities themselves profitable, to use that word? Or does this happen regardless of profits or losses? Oh, the salaries go up regardless of profits, losses, catastrophes, overseas campuses closing down, having your right to bring international students here taken away from you. No, their the salaries still go up. Doesn't affect it Doesn't at all. Doesn't affect those. Yeah. Okay, oh, that's very nice to hear. But then. <laughs> They're doing very well. Jane McKenzie there. The overall message seeming to be 
Don't go to university unless you've just received a job offer asking you to take up a post as vice-chancellor. Now, readers of The Eye this week might have spotted a little section entitled Eye Editor's Shame. This is the news that the editor, Ian Hislop, leads a clean life, according to no less grand a source than the Old Bailey itself. The fact emerged as part of a trial in which it was revealed that the former editor of The Mirror, Piers Morgan, had set his journalists onto trying to find dirt on the private eye editor. Here's Ian Hislop on how exactly the story came about. Yes, well, I was obviously delighted to read that when I returned from holiday, and as <laughs> usual when I go on holiday, I find that Francis Ween, my deputy, has put in something to embarrass me. Francis obviously thought it was incredibly funny, um, <laughs> but nothing had been turned up about my life because it's so incredibly boring. Um, it was something of a shock to find out that this story had again surfaced as part of a quite a serious court case. We should say what the trial is as well, shouldn't we? Yes, this is a Mirror reporter called Graham Bruff, who is on trial with a number of Sun journalists about paying public officials. This was a character witness who'd come in to say, well, you know, Mirror editors ask you to do quite extraordinary things. And this was meant to be, you know, general good character for these poor journalists. Anyway, one of the terrible things that he was asked to do was come and turn me over. I mean, it is funny that uh, Piers decided that he would have his revenge. In the piece in the paper, I noticed it said this was because of an appearance on Have I Got News For You. I actually think the timing... As ever, you can't trust journalists to get any of these stories right. I think this campaign started in 2002, and it was because we were running stories about Piers and the City Slickers column. You may remember the editor of the Mirror was buying shares in companies that his city pages were then tipping, which is, on the whole, considered not to be ethical practice. But there were a number of reasons given in subsequent inquiries, many of them convincing, I'm sure, we ran something about um, Piers interviewing Alan Sugar, didn't we? We did. Um, there are a number of interesting <laughs> tales for anyone who wants to grab their index um, about this long feud. But anyway, it was partly that. It was partly because Piers was pontificating about um, marriage and fidelity, which again was not his strong point at the time. So, I mean, he was generally very, very cross with the eye right. for... I mean, as tabloid editors go, um, they tend to be very thin-skinned. So if you say anything about them, despite the fact that every day they're running filthy love romp in, you know, Benidorm, <laughs> uh, if you suggest anything about them, they go wild. So he decided that he would get me. What form did the campaign take, exactly? Well, it started with a, have you got any dirt on his lop? Right. Sort of huge banner uh, headlines and um, trying to get his readers. But he actually put quite a lot of resources on it. There were a lot of Mirror reporters down at my house in Kent. Right. I got doorstepped every morning you know, when I was taking the children to school. I always say that to make myself look better. I was definitely doing the school run. Um, so there were a lot of reporters down there, one of whom had a real shock because um, one of my neighbours is a former policeman who knew nothing about this and saw a bloke in a car, big, big former policeman, went up to him and said, you a fido, you better shift, mate. Um, very scared. Reporter ran away. I got a phone call from my vicar, again, he's a very sweet man, he said, I'm terribly sorry, but I've had a number of um, gentlemen from the Mirror ringing me up saying, "Um, have I got any dirt on you (laughs) that I've given you in confession? And he was was very upset, the vicar, but he was partly upset because um, the Mirror didn't seem to understand it in the Church of England, we don't do (laughs) confessions. And this year I was terribly shocked (laughs) by this ignorance. The campaign eventually just died a death, didn't it? It did. He, its high point was when he said, look how our campaign has destroyed his lot. And there was a picture of me with my arm in a sling, unshaven, looking terrible, which he'd taken outside a hospital where I'd had a big operation on my shoulder and I did look terrible. But 
as the piece didn't quite explain, I looked terrible um, <laughs> because I'd uh, been under an anaesthetic. Yeah, I mean, we managed to break his lop's arm and put him in a sling. It's not quite the same headline. It's not what he wanted as a tabloid to say, is it? It's not, and I think he was hoping for something better. But to be honest, I think the journalists' hearts weren't in it. I got the feeling as the campaign went on that they thought it was slightly humiliating to be put onto a job that was really just revenge for their boss. And they did. I mean, whatever the timing, they were convinced it was because Piers was so useless on Have I Got News. I see. But to be, to be fair, that's because Clive Anderson was very, very funny. He yeah. made some remark about um, editing a newspaper and uh, Piers said, well, what would you know about editing a newspaper? And Clive said, well, about as much as you. <laughs> Ian Hislop and, by proxy, Clive Anderson there. That is all for this week's episode of Page 94. We do hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, you might want to consider writing a review of us on iTunes, uh, telling a friend about the podcast, or simply sitting quietly in your home thinking, huh, I really enjoyed that podcast. If you haven't enjoyed it, of course, please observe silence to the grave and beyond on this matter. If you'd like to get in contact with us, or if you're one of Britain's vice-chancellors and you'd simply like to send us some of your money, you can email podcast at private-i.co.uk. Thanks again, and we'll be back in a fortnight with another of these. Goodbye.